The next steps on the transcendental depend origination are the meditation steps. And again, we have to understand that meditation is a means to an end, and particularly that the stages of absorption are a means to an end. They are not an end in themselves. And it is actually what happened in the India of the Buddha. At the time of the Buddha, meditation in India was well established. It was not something that the Buddha brought new to the um, practice. However, what he uh, brought new and was the innovator of was the fact that the samatha, the samadhi, was not sufficient. Because then and now, in India, it is a widespread practice and belief that the eight meditative absorptions, when perfected, are all that is possible on the spiritual path and mean that one has reached the pinnacle. The Buddha himself learned those eight absorptions, practiced them, practiced them under the Bodhi tree, practiced them at his Mahaparinibbana, practiced them for six years with two teachers, but left the teachers because he said and realized, this is not the end, this is only the means. And he found no other teacher to teach him that what was the end, namely the insight. That he found by himself. And it is said that all Buddhas find that by themselves in exactly the same form. However, although it is not the end, it is the means. According to the Buddha's instructions, in the Pali Canon, where discourse after discourse deals with the practice from here to there, from our worldly state, namely the one, the state of a worldling, to the state of one who realizes Nibbana. On that pathway, the meditative absorptions are part of the practice. They are not all of the practice, they are part of the practice. They're certainly not the end, but they are the means. The means because the mind is able then to be one-pointed. The mind is able to gain muscles, strength. A mind which is changing from discursive thinking back to the meditation subject and back to thinking is a mind that hasn't got the necessary strength to stay in one spot. The mind that doesn't have the necessary strength to stay in one spot can, under no circumstances, have the necessary strength to go into the depth where the profundity of the Buddha's teaching to its very ultimate 
absolute truth can be found, it cannot penetrate to that because it lacks the strength. It wobbles from one thing to the next. So we have to have a mind and that can do this, and that's why we practice samatha. That's why we try to stay on the meditation subject. The mind that is not yet equipped with the ability to be totally one-pointed can gain insights on the way which will again help it to become more one-pointed. But there's another aspect to the depth of the meditative absorptions, and this happens in the very first instance. The very first jhana, the meditative absorptions are called the jhanas, and since that is a much easier word, I might stick to it. J-H-A-N-A has five factors. And these five factors counteract five other factors, namely the five hindrances. And that counteracting of the five hindrances is an automatic process. In other words, we have an automatic purification once we're able to gain access to the first meditative absorption. Our purification, which we have to, of course, constantly watch in our daily living, gets an enormous boost when we have the ability to be totally absorbed in meditation. And the way this works is an interesting fact, one which should give one enough impetus to really be determined to become concentrated. The five hindrances which the Buddha spoke about are the difficulties which beset every worldling. None of us is immune. We all have them. And they only slowly and gradually disappear, even on the very first stage of enlightenment, which is called stream entry, sattapana. There is not any of those, there is only one of those five hindrances removed. And on the second stage, there aren't any of them removed only lessened. On the third stage, we lose the two major ones. So you can see how every worldling has all five, and they are what makes life what it is, a constant search for satisfaction where it cannot be found. The five factors that occur in meditation. The first one occurs in any meditation, whether it is an absorption or not. 
In Pali it's called Vitaka and it means initial application. It means that one puts one's mind onto the meditation subject. Now that is something everybody does. Whether it's successful or not, it's a second question. But Vitaka arises when we put our mind on the meditation subject. This counteracts the third of the hindrances, namely, sloth and torpor. When there is sloth and torpor, the mind cannot have any strength at all, any wakefulness to even put itself onto the meditation subject. So the more often we put our mind onto the meditation subject, the less there will be torpor in the mind. Torpor in the mind and sloth in the body. However, it is the torpor in the mind, the the mind that does not have clarity, which then creates also the sloth in the body. So it is particularly the mind which we are addressing, of course, through the meditation practice. The uh, torpor in the mind is the kind of mind which says, I'll do it later, I'll do it tomorrow, it can't be that important, I'm a bit tired now, I can't really be bothered, I wonder whether there's any use in doing it. All the excuses we have for not meditating. The more often we do meditate, and try to put the mind onto the meditation subject, the less this will arise in the mind. Our minds are all habit-prone, and it's very difficult to get out of old habits. That's why to get into new habits means giving ourselves a push. And that push must not be too hard, nor must it be too gentle. It's got to be balanced. And only we ourselves know where that balance is. It's very difficult for anyone else to push. So we really are, again, our own teacher. However, Vitaka, if it stands by itself, is followed by discursive thinking. This initial application is exactly what happens in the meditation process as we know it, when there is no real concentration. It is on and off. There is nothing to rely on. So it has to be followed by the next factor, which is called in Pali Vichara. Now the two are always mentioned together because the two have to be together when there is any real meditation without discursive thinking. Vichara means continued application. That means that the mind no longer wheels off 
the meditation subject. It stays right with it. It stays with the breath or whatever the meditation subject happens to be and it does not fall off it because the mind has had so many initial applications that it has finally come to the point where it can sustain the application. It can stay there. Naturally, everybody knows that meditation only works when you can stay concentrated. However, the difficulties which arise are familiar to everyone. This second one, the second factor, which are counteracts skeptical doubt. When it happens that we can stay with the meditation subject and do not rear off at all, we have total confidence that, first of all, it's possible, secondly, that we are able to do it, and thirdly, that the results which accrue are exactly what the Buddha said. So until then, skeptical doubt arises again and again in the most insidious way. Skeptical doubt is the enemy of faith and confidence. It is also the enemy of practice. Skeptical doubt is the one that says there must be an easier way. There must be a different way. There must be a better teacher. There must be a better monastery. There must be a better situation. There must be better monks and nuns. There must be a different way which suits me better. There must be something that will really grip me. All sorts of ideas, untold ones, there's no end to them. The mind is a magician. It can always bring up something new. Skeptical doubt shows itself in the matter, in the way we cannot fully give ourselves to the situation we're in. We're in it, so we might as well immerse ourselves in it. However, skeptical doubt keeps us back. I might lose some of my control. I might lose some of my um, um, acknowledgement of my own importance. I might lose this or that if I immerse myself completely. This is all due to skeptical doubt because there is no personal experience of what it really means to have the results of the Buddha's teaching. At that time, it is counteracted. It is not completely eliminated. It's only completely eliminated at a later stage which I will explain at another time. But here at least, it is counteracted to the effect where one has no more doubt about practicing meditation. It has results, and therefore, one cannot doubt it. And 
one has also realized by that time that it makes absolutely no difference where one does it, as long as one does it. And that is also an important factor because one can search for a perfect place, a perfect time, a perfect situation, a perfect teacher till the end of one's life and never find it because skeptical doubt will always intervene. So Vitaka Vichara, initial application and sustained application are the first two factors of meditative absorption. We have to understand that all methods that we're using are nothing but keys. It doesn't matter what method it is. There are no good or bad methods. They're all methods. So we must understand that they're keys. And if we hold the key in our hand long enough and solidly enough, we will eventually be able to stick it into the keyhole. As long as we wobble back and forth, we won't be able to hit the keyhole. Or maybe once or twice by accident. But not on a sustained basis. So whatever method, it's a method. The keyhole opens the door. And when we open the door, we have access to what we might call a house with eight rooms. And as we enter, we enter the entry hall, which has those two first two factors in it. And having been now in it in the house, we can continue. Eventually, we will not need the key anymore. If we continue to practice, and this is a, a condition, the door remains open. If we stop practice, it will fall shut again. Being able to have the meditative absorption means that the mind stretches. It stretches where it becomes pliable, it becomes soft, malleable, and expands. Once we stop doing this every single day, naturally it shrinks back to its usual limitations. You can compare it to doing yoga exercises with the body. When we stretch long enough, we will be able to touch our toes without any difficulty. Because the muscles and the sinews, they have been stretched enough so that there's no difficulty. We stop doing it for six months, we have to start all over again. It all shrinks back to where it was. Same with the mind. Not even six months, less than that. To stretch the mind, to make it malleable, pliable, expandable, is the aspect of being able to encompass the whole of the teaching. Until such time, 
when the mind is still limited and shrunken in its usual capacities with which we live and survive, we will only be able to understand in a limited way. That is quite natural. And that's why the Buddha's path always consisted of pariyati and patipata, which means study and practice. We have to know, but we have to practice. Because what we know is not enough for us to experience. We need the expansion of the mind. And the expansion of the mind makes it then possible to see with an inner vision entirely differently from we used to. The third factor which arises when the sustained application has happened is called in Pali Piti, in Sanskrit Priti, and in English Bliss, Rapture, and what it really is, is extremely pleasant physical feeling. This pleasant physical feeling is often experienced by people in the meditation practice without knowing what to do with it. So some of you will have an occasion to say, oh yes, and others will have an occasion to say, goodness, do I have to do all that? Meditation goes in that direction naturally. The mind yearns for the final stopping of this constant thinking and wants to become peaceful and at ease. It yearns for it, which is one or the probably the reason for coming to meditation. What other reason do people usually have? Hardly any other, except that, to finally have to stop being judgmental, to be able to stop having to think about all the problems that were in the past and might arise in the future and that are now in the present, but become peaceful. So the mind has not only a yearning for it, but it has an underlying, at least subconscious knowledge that this is where it wants to go. And this is why every mind can go there. It is a matter of application and determination. That's all it is. If we apply ourselves to it and are determined to continue, then there's no reason why anyone should not be able to follow this path. This is the natural progression for every human mind. This blissful feeling is a uh, physical feeling, but the attention at that time does not go to the body as such, but goes to the feeling. 
And what actually happens in the meditative practice is this. Having been on the breath and being able to stay on it, and let's use the breath as our meditation subject, uh, notwithstanding that there are many other subjects, but having been able to be on it, the breath changes. It becomes finer and finer. Because the mind, being able to stay on the breath, also becomes finer and finer. It no longer attends to outside matters. It actually attends only to the breath. And at the time when it does that, then it is so, uh, the breath becomes almost as if it vanishes. It doesn't, because if it were to vanish, we would be dead. But it doesn't, but it seems to. It is imperceptible. It has such a fine quality that the mind can hardly find it or not at all. And at that moment, Vitaka Vichara has been taken care of and Piti arises. Piti is that pleasant body feeling of which in the um, uh, canon we find 17 different ones listed. There are more than 17 different ones. They are very individually different, and they can be different from meditation session to meditation session. Some of them are a lightness of the body, as if the body has lost its weight. It can be so strong that the person to whom it happens for the first time might look to see whether it's lifted up from the pillow. They haven't but the body feels so light. There can be a feeling of um, a, com a tingling through the body which makes the body feel very pleasant. There can be a feeling of um, like a, a raising up of all ones, not actually from the, from the ground, but a raising up as if one has uh, become a taller and the body dimensions are lost. Whatever feeling it is, it is always extremely pleasant and it has with it the, uh, a joyous feeling of this pleasure. It counteracts ill will. When we experience such a pleasant sensation and are able to sustain it, not just momentarily for one second, but are able to sustain it in our meditative practice and are able to resurrect it at will, because this is part of the practice that one can do what one wants to do in the practice as the mind becomes stronger, then it naturally counteracts ill will. How can one have ill will towards anyone or anything if one has a most pleasant feeling when one wants one, any time one wants it? And this is one of the very important aspects of this um, ability 
to go into the absorptions, namely that no matter what happens in the daily life, no matter what happens on the outside, the outer triggers, the conditions, the mind knows it can remove itself when it wants to sit down to meditate and have this pleasure of which the Buddha said, this is a pleasure I will allow myself. In the middle and saying, Majjhima And he contrasted it to the pleasures of the senses, which are gross and dependent upon outer conditions. We have to have something nice to see, nice to hear, nice to taste, and nice to touch, nice to smell, and nice to think in order to have pleasure of the senses. In other words, we are the victim of outer condition. Here is the first time when we are the master of the situation. We no longer need the outer condition. All we need is the inner condition. The inner condition is a condition of concentration. This has by no means got anything to do with the unconditioned. These are conditions, but they are inner conditions. And therefore, we are now at least that much independent of what goes on around us. Because even though it is still irksome, it will remain irksome until at least one is a non-returner, almost enlightened. It will remain irksome that long. However, there is this knowledge that one can return to where the mind has found a home. You can compare this with a home for the body. If the body didn't have a roof over its head, didn't have a bed to sleep in, a place where it could feel safe from the rain and the wind and the storm and the snow, from the sun, where it could be at peace, then if we didn't have such a place and would have to live and sleep on the street, we would be very disturbed. But the mind doesn't have such a home. While the body is peacefully sitting in the most comfortable armchair, it can have the most violent problems. While the body is having a nice roof over its head and is fully protected from all the uh, inclements of the weather, the mind is by no means protected from the storm of its own emotions. It has no home where it can go to. The only thing that it likes is to fall asleep because at that time at least it only dreams and it doesn't have the conscious awareness of its problems. When we are able to have the absorption, at least the initial one, which is the very first one, this one, then the mind has found a home where it can retreat to and have a roof over its head and can be, be safe for the time of the meditation from the storm of its emotions. And naturally these emotions will be greatly improved and lessened 
because of the fact that such a pleasant abiding is what the Buddha called it. This is a pleasant abiding. Such a pleasant abiding reduces one's ill will. Ill will can be called also hate. Hate is a, it's a, a common name. Ill will is the name that it is given in the five hindrances. You can call it dislike. You can call it anger. You can call it resistance. You can give it any name you like as long as you realize that every worldling is beset with it. And it isn't something that is helpful to us. The Buddha compared it to getting angry at someone. He compared to picking up hot coals, burning coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody. Who gets burned first? The one who's picking up the coals, no doubt. The one who's got the anger. We might not even we might not even hit the one that we're trying to aim at. If he's clever and practiced enough, he will duck. And we've still got those burned hands. The Buddha also said that the one who can check a risen anger is the one whom he calls a true practitioner, just like a charioteer can check horses that are running wild and bring them back to doing their duty. He is the one he calls a real charioteer. So our, our negative emotions are being automatically smoothed by being able to have this pleasant abiding which comes from initial and sustained application, which means sticking to the meditation subject. And the negativity which arises because of one's own reaction to certain outer triggers has then not so such an, an enormity in it. We still have to work with it as it arises in daily living, but it is far less of a problem. And another thing which comes with it is also compassion. The compassion wanting to help others to be able to attain these states which are the inner abiding where the inner life becomes one that is smooth and harmonious. We're all very um, practiced at tidying up and cleaning up our rooms and our households. And we wouldn't like to have all our messes lying about. But we need to clean up and tidy up this inner household. And this is the, the automatic way 
of giving us an in into that. Because the inner household, when it is so rough and has a lot of, um, not only confusion, but also a lot of um, negative emotions in it, is very difficult to live in. Just like it's difficult to live in a household where everything is topsy-turvy and nothing gets ever cleaned up and all the dishes are left dirty and all the dirty clothes are lying on the floor. It's very difficult to live in something like that. The same it is difficult to live with something like that within. When that gets smoothed out, then the ease of living becomes apparent. That doesn't mean there's no more dukkha. As long as there's an eye, there's a dukkha. There's dukkha. But the ease of living makes also meditation much easier. With the uh, um, pleasant feeling arises naturally some happiness, sukha. Sukha, the opposite of dukkha. And this counteracts the fourth hindrance, restlessness and worry. If there is happiness right now, then what's there to worry about? The future will take care of itself. Because the happiness which is arising within is something that we are aware of at the time, we can resurrect. We are no longer looking then for the happiness that comes to us from outside. We are strictly looking for the happiness that comes to us from inside. Although that too will change as we progress, at this point, this is where we're at. And the worry about the future, which is a totally absurd worry anyway, because the one who worries about the future is not the one who will experience the future. That worry is let go of. The one who's worrying now cannot be the same one that will experience the future if we have had any kind of insight into impermanence. Continuity covers up impermanence, but it certainly doesn't change it. It only covers it up so that when we still have not the complete clarity, then we think that we are a person that continues. So the restlessness will also disappear at that time because having found what one wants, namely happiness, what is there to be restless about? Where can one go to find anything better? One takes it with one if one has it, and one takes it with one if one hasn't got it. If one hasn't got it, one has restlessness wherever one goes, because it isn't fulfilling. And if one has the inner happiness, then it doesn't matter where one is. So the sukha which arises, which is a resultant of the pleasant physical feeling, a natural resultant, takes care of the fourth hindrance, restlessness and worry. 
one has to remember that these hindrances are only eliminated at the time of meditation. They are by no means uprooted. As I said earlier, they are only progressively uprooted at stages of enlightenment, but they are eliminated during the meditation time. And this you can look at in this way. If you have a garden that's full of weeds and you let them grow as much as they like, they will eventually take up all the nourishment out of the soil and they will completely cover up the good plants that are growing and take away the sun and the water from them. So if the weeds have very deep roots, as some of them do, and are very difficult to uproot, the next best thing is to cut them down. As we cut them down, they become weaker and weaker also in their root system. And they certainly no longer take up all the nourishment and they no longer overshadow the good plants. And this is what happens in the meditation. We do not uproot the hindrances, but we cut them down. And as we keep on cutting them down again and again, they become so feeble and become so small that it is no longer such an enormous task to uproot them. As we progress then, eventually we can uproot them. That means that we have to, of course, practice meditation every day because, as every gardener knows, weeds always grow better than the plants. So they keep on growing. The fifth factor which arises at that time is one-pointedness. It has to arise. If it is now, if there's no one-pointedness, obviously, one the absorption will fall apart. As long as there is one-pointedness one can stay in it. And the one-pointedness counteracts our desire for sensual gratification. Luckily, we are unable to do two things with our mind at the same time. So when we are one-pointed and totally absorbed in the pleasant feeling and the happiness which has arisen from that, we have no other wishes. We have no desire for pleasant food, better touch contact, in other words, any pain in the body at that time is totally um, I wouldn't say eliminated because it arises again after one comes out of it, but it has no significance at all. It is not an object of attention, any of the physical pain. So one does not desire more physical comfort. There's no desire for any pleasantness because one has a far greater pleasantness than ever before. 
the first four of the meditative absorptions of which I have only explained the first one are called the Rupa Jhanas. Rupa is body, materiality, corporality. And it, they are called in English the fine material absorptions. And the next four are called the non-material absorptions. Now, these are called the fine material absorptions because all the states which arise, all four of them, are known to us in a much grosser way, in a far less uh, refined way, quantitatively and qualitatively much less uh, significant, but still they are part of our makeup. A very pleasant bodily feeling is known to us. The one which arises in the meditation is one that is different from any of the ones that are known to us, and yet it has some application to what we already can experience. It is qualitatively and quantitatively far greater, and when it happens for the first time, it is very often the case that people will have tears in their eyes of joy. That stops very quickly because one gets used to it. It also happens, of course, that the mind says, goodness, what's that? And the whole thing stops, and one has to start all over again. There are two things which are important to know about, and with this state of meditative absorption. If it should happen for the very first time, as I said before, the breath becomes so fine that it is almost impossible to find it, and the physical feeling arises and the attention goes to that feeling. When that dissipates, either because the concentration is finished or the time is finished for the meditation, two things need to be done. The first thing is, before one opens one's eyes, the first thing is to experience right then and there the impermanence of even the most pleasant feelings. We have absolutely no objection to experiencing the impermanence of unpleasant feelings. But we have a great deal of objection to the impermanence of pleasant feelings. And yet, both are equally impermanent. None can be hung on to. And as we progress, in insight and in meditation, we will see what an important factor this is to realize right then and there how this pleasant feeling has now dissipated. We can watch it actually dissolve. This is very important, to watch the dissolution of one's meditation subject is an advanced step in insight. First we know the arising of it and the ceasing. 
In this case, we have come to a step in our meditation practice where we can watch the dissolving. This dissolution at that time does not bring any dislike or unhappiness with it. The mind at that time is too happy to become unhappy. However, it is very common that the mind will react with, oh, what a pity, I hope I can get it back. When the mind reacts like that, we have to realize that that is attachment. Nothing needs to be watched except the dissolving of it. It is dissolving like everything does. And the second thing which is very important to do is a recapitulation. What one has done for the whole of that meditation period to arrive at such a desirable state of concentration. Everybody finds their own little trigger. They are individual. Although the meditation progression is universal for all human minds, the initial triggers are individual. One needs to recapitulate whether one has said differently, whether one has been thinking differently before even entering the hall, whether one has eaten differently, more or less, whether one has done anything before even entering the hall, whether when entering the hall there was anything that one did or didn't do, when sitting down whether one used a different posture, when starting the meditation, whether one used a different initial meditative practices, anything at all, and eventually one will find the necessary trigger so that one can always enter into this first room of this house without any difficulty at all, eventually by just sitting down. Because, as I said before, the mind is habit-prone, if it has done it often enough, it will keep on doing it. There's no reason for it to stop unless we stop it from doing it. In the beginning, we will need all the necessary uh, meditation practices, all the initial ones, all our uh, keys that we can use, as many aids as we can possibly find. But within them, we must find something that was a big help. And that one thing that was a big help can be physical. It can be mental. It can be a different way of sitting. It can be a different way of thinking. It can have to do with having confidence in oneself, having confidence in the teaching, having confidence in the teacher. In many years of teaching, I have found that those people who listen exactly to the instruction and do it have the best results. They don't start comparing. They don't start arguing inside of themselves about it. They just do it. And having done it, they get the results. Not everybody is able to do that. It needs a special kind of mind. It needs a mind which has a kind of trust 
that children have. There are always people like that that can do it. There are many other triggers. That's not the only one. This is one I'm aware of. There are many physical triggers that will help people. One has to be comfortable in body and mind. One of the preconditions which I've been talking about is joy, a comfort within oneself. When one sits down, one sits down because one wants to, not because somebody has arranged a retreat and one can hardly back out of it. But one sits down because one wants to sit down. And one sits down and one is comfortable sitting here. One doesn't have to have any tension in the body. It isn't that then practice of being um, very, very rigid in one's body. The rigidity of the body is against that kind of expansion of mind. It is more towards rigidity. <coughs> Eventually, people find their own little way of getting there, after once having been there. This is um, maybe a help to understand why it is so utterly important to try and get that concentration to the point where it can be sustained. While it is not being sustained, naturally we have to use all the possible aids that are available. But there's only one reason for doing that, and that's to eventually get to the point where the mind has this ability. It is an ability of the mind which is beyond any other ability. We can design a rocket to go to the moon and make it work very well and still be extremely unhappy. So that ability is of no comparison to the ability to concentrate one's mind and be one-pointed and have that inner poise which does not get disturbed. In the meditative practice, that poise arises from that inner happiness. A person who isn't happy cannot remain within themselves. They want to go out, out of themselves. So here we have the first instance, the first step into the meditative absorptions and the five factors which go with that, which counteract the five hindrances. Hi, Emma. <clears throat> Is there any difference in the method between the first and the second absorption of sustained attention. The first one was... An Not first and second absorption, first and second factor of the first absorption. The whole thing I've been explaining right. is all the first absorption. A difference in method between first and second factor. Yes. First factor being... Initial application. Initial. 
second sustained application. Well, determination. <laughs> um, being comfortable with oneself. These are preconditions. Otherwise, it's just a run-on. I mean, the initial application has to run into the sustained application eventually. But the precondition is the inner comfort and the outer comfort, which is the having some joy in what one is doing and knowing that there is nothing greater that could possibly be done. This is the, the epitome of human endeavor. Everything else pales in comparison. And to know that, and to actually sit with that, that brings it about. It takes a bit of conviction. But other than that, some um, method, some uh, technique, no. just staying with the breath. So it's sort of an organic transition between the two. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The whole thing is an organic transition because even from one to the next in all five sectors, they are organically following each other. Rather than switching techniques. No, no, it's nothing to, nothing. No. I have the third stage is bliss and rapture and I don't have the fourth. Oh, okay. Sukha, happiness. It's just simply happiness? Yeah. And simply happiness. <laughs> <laughs> Would that take into account um, I just, I'm just wanting to be clear about where it starts and stops. Would that take into account um, compassion and the smooth and harmonious inner life. Those are words I was using. Mm-hmm. In what state? At what spot did and I use fourth, them? Would this be the third or the fourth? No, um, these are n- not. These are factors. Huh? Five factors which arise in the first absorption. Okay, I'm just, just right. Thinking. Five factors which arise in the first absorption, and they go like that. Initial application, sustained application, then comes um, bliss, rapture, you can also call it pleasant physical feeling, right? Then comes the happiness. And the last one is the one-pointedness. Now, when you have inner happiness, uh, that was the counteract, counteract uh, restlessness and worry, right? And the, um, the uh, PT, the rapture, or the bliss, blissful feeling, was counteracting ill will. So that was also the arouser of the compassion. Thank you. Right? Okay. The word, the word is piti or preeti? Both preeti is Sanskrit, piti is Pali. Same word. I don't know the Sanskrit for that. I only know Pali. Oh, Pali. Ekagata. Eka is one. E-K-A-G-A-T-T-A. 
Pali is ekagata. So it must be the same in Sanskrit. <laughs> same word. Um, when, I, when I was in Thailand, I managed to reach the first jhana. But I, but I also, there was something else that I don't want to include in that or not. I had a feeling of, uh, like my body wasn't mine anymore. I just knew I had to take care of it. But it was just another, another mm-hmm. um, living thing that I would need to take care of for, for its duration. I didn't, I didn't feel any ownership, just a responsibility to it. But that was after. That was, yeah. that was after you came out of it. That was not yeah, during. After, yes. yeah. is, is that a common... Uh, uh, it was a very important insight. And what happened to all that wonderful jhana dissipated into Thailand? Well, because, well, you know, I, uh, I, was, I was so frightened by it all. Um, it, it seemed that I, I had the feeling that, um, that something that had shown me great happiness was also going to show me the opposite and I felt death coming, and I realized now perhaps it was the death of the ego that was actually coming. That sort of, but it, to me it felt like it was death, kneeling death on you. Mm. Yes. You were not able at that time to discuss this with the teacher. That's a great pity. Um, is it long, long ago? That was, that was 19 years ago. Oh dear, 19? <laughs> oh. That's a great pity, because I was just going to say, can you remember anything that you did? Oh, I remember what I did. To get there. Oh, but I did. Oh, yeah, I remember. To to get into the first jhana. Yeah. Okay. Can you do it again? Well, I'd have to shut myself in the house for a week and not come out and try every method in the book. I'm do. No, it doesn't have to be that drastic. Oh, but I don't. I don't actually remember what got me to that. No, it's well, too I, long ago. Yeah, no, I do actually. No, it's very clear. Yeah? It's the most clear experience of my whole life, so it's, right. it's just like I did it yesterday. Right. So the thing is, I meditated for five months after that in my own little house, and food was brought to me, but I never I never got there again. Yes, um, so because you didn't have the, the necessary uh, uh, guidance at the time. Uh, because once having done it, uh, it is, well, I mean, there will be often on moments but you can get there again. Can you remember any little thing that helped you? Well... Not a big thing like shutting yourself in a house. No. Well, a little thing that I did, I don't usually talk about it, but I... <laughs> after, after I, uh, I, I felt as if I had avoided my body and my mind, so I was just empty. And then I, I took a mirror and I looked at it and I said, the I in the I, the capital I in the E-Y-E, mm-hmm. and all at once it said, there isn't any that sort of the cap just blew off, right? And then you were able to do this, to do the meditation, after having looked in the mirror like that? Uh, well, then I just sort of, wow, you know, I just sat outside and I was just sort of humming in unison with nature and mm. it was the first time I'd ever felt harmonious in my life. Oh. It was no longer the desperation that had brought me right. to the point of do or die, right? Or right. That was gone completely and so they, they took me to see the head monk and he just told me to write it down. It wasn't overly impressive anything a woman would do. And then when I started getting a terror, then all he did was tell me to just go back to my breath. Oh dear. So what I did was I imagined I took all this energy that I was feeling and I was, wow, you know. And I, and I imagined putting it in a wire and just putting it 
in an electric wire mm-hmm. take it long to a transmitter if I was able to, to deal with it and then perhaps I then again I, then I would get it again. Uh, so that's what I did with it. I just mm-hmm. as strong as I could I imagine going into a wire mm-hmm. and hoping that at another point uh, I would be able to connect with it again. So maybe you can connect with it now. So how about um, uh, this experience that you were telling about looking in the mirror and saying, well, there is actually nothing but the eye looking. Is that what you did? Yeah, right. Um, Well, repeat something like that. And then sit down with that uh, feeling of, um, there is nothing to worry about. Let me just get on with it and see if 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 it helps. Any, anything, even bring the mirror in here, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter, really. Any trigger that brings you there. And then imagine that wire, huh? Okay? And say that it's just ending right there on the pillow now. It's pretty scary, though. It's a lot of energy, you know, a lot of... No, there's nothing to be scared of. You see, uh, terror of appearances is one of the stages of insight. All you need is a teacher to tell you it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> terror is a later later insight. Terror of uh, terror of all that exists is, is a later insight. Well, I that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a later insight, and it's a great pity that the man at the time, or the monks, I should say, at the time, didn't pick up on it. No, they just thought it was something Yeah, 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 sure. Women and Westerners, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I've been there. <laughs> But try that, huh? Okay. Okay, what else? So it's kind of testimonial, though. It's true. <laughs> 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 well, I, I think the, um, uh, the Buddha's a description of it while it is extremely short but it's so repetitive he repeats it over and over and over in in so many of his discourses that one can hardly doubt that that is so unless one doubts him completely um, his description is so um, very very um, uh, limited that it gives rise to two thoughts in my mind. The first thought is, well, maybe everybody could do it anyway, and he didn't have to explain. And the second thought is that we have lost the actual description of what people were, what he actually did tell people to do. Because it is so very um, limited described that most people who read it, in fact, I think everyone who reads it thinks, well, this is impossible. I can't do that. And yet, it is amazing how many people can in the West and that is the most amazing part it is not something which is unusual it's not something which is so difficult that it can't be done because the mind has the natural yearning for it and its natural progression goes that way one does one is greatly helped if one gets a little guidance with it it's very helpful so any other questions? Everybody's so amazed at your experience now. <laughs> There's nothing else to say. <laughs> I just have some clerks. Uh, yeah, sit there. <laughs>
You mean vipassana as can you gain insight from concentrating on the breath? Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. So the method you gave yesterday, the sweeping method, isn't there are other methods of vipassana? Uh, that sweeping method happens to take that name on, but we call it sweeping. It's just another method. And it is particularly useful for people who are, um, what do you say, head trippers who are removed from their feelings, who have no access to, to, to their feelings. Very useful for them. Very useful for those who can't concentrate very well. It is a method of gaining concentration because it's a little more interesting than just the breath. People get very easily bored on the breath. So um, because there's no clarity, it's just boring, the whole thing. Uh, there are hardly any meditation methods, and I qualify it with hardly, um, that do not have the uh, uh, possibility of samatha and vipassana, calm and insight. They're only methods. That's all they are. A method is a method by any name. So whether you use this one or that one, they are all to designed to um, complement each other. None of them are contrary to each other. So if you were, for instance, to use the um, sweeping and then go to the breath, you might find that you are better able to concentrate on the breath. Something like that. How do you know when you're doing vipassana on the breath as opposed to samatha on the breath? Well, at this time, at this stage, uh, the insight which arises would be, first of all, when you're labeling your thoughts, you're getting an insight into your own thinking pattern and your thinking procedure. You're also seeing the impermanence, the arising and the ceasing of these thoughts, that there's nothing you can hang on to, that there's absolutely no stability in them. Now that's insight. If you were, instead of this discursive thinking, rather put your attention on the fact that the breath is totally impermanent. Its continuity covers over its impermanence because it keeps coming. We forget that each breath is finished. So even that, putting your mind on that and seeing that, how it happens like that, that gives you insight. If you can stay on the breath and have initial and sustained application, meaning you're staying on it, you're working towards calm. And the way we work is we work for both, on both ways, because most people are unable in the initial stages of meditation, and initial can last quite some time, um, to gain real calm. They're also unable to gain real insight. So we have to work on both levels because they help each other. A little calm brings a little insight. A little insight brings a little calm. So we always work on both levels. 
and uh, eventually both have to be uh, come to fruition calm and insight but calm is the means inside is the goal is that clear? Mm-hmm. it isn't I was wondering if it's necessary to uh, in practice in getting to the Vipassana stage to change the uh, locus of your attention but from what you just said now it doesn't seem that that just, uh, it doesn't seem that to be you can stay with the breath. You don't mm. have to do the sweeping. Well, I don't say that you have to, but I would, in your case, recommend it highly. In my case? Yes. Oh, the sweeping? Yes, oh. absolutely. And and uh, do you find it unpleasant to do? Yes. Let's well, do it. Now, you see, you haven't understood Samatha and Vipassana. Maybe I should try again. There are two directions. There are dozens and dozens of methods. The Buddha taught 40 methods. And there are many more running around all over the place. But there's only two directions, Samatha and Vipassana. Okay? Samatha means calm. Vipassana means insight. Okay? The first jhana is the first step of having samatha, of having calm. Knowing impermanence is vipassana, is insight. It still isn't clear, is it? Uh, yes, I, I have a lot of extending or expanding my view of samatha now. Yes. This is all, this first jhana is all under samatha. Thank you. Hmm. What I understood that sleeping uh, is uh, the core of uh, the person. It's the very essential essence of it. That's what Gwenka says. Hmm? That's what Mr. Gwenka says. Hmm. But he is the only one who says that. Maybe. <laughs> 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 That's his opinion, and I wouldn't argue about it. <laughs> It is impossible to make such sweeping statements. <laughs> there are many practitioners in the world who practice something else. And it is an excellent method, otherwise I wouldn't teach it. But it certainly is not uh, exactly a method that the Buddha taught. There's no way you can say that. But it has taken the name Vipassana. All right, what else? Anything else? We've got eight more minutes to lunch time. Now, in order to maybe to elaborate on this Samatha and Vipassana one little step further, the jhanas, the meditative absorptions, are Samatha. They are the eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, Sama Samadhi. 
right concentration. Sama means right and samadhi means concentration. They are that, right concentration. But with each of the steps on the way into the absorptions, we gain more insight. As I was, for instance, explaining that these five factors already are cut down on our five hindrances and as they also arouse then compassion in us so that the mind becomes of a different nature. We don't have to keep the kind of mind we've got, it's not necessary because we have within all the potential. And this may be also uh, part of this explanation. The samsara, the uh, wheel of birth and death, what we are caught in as ordinary worldlings, is a state of consciousness. And so is Nibbana. And the state of consciousness is available to us. The one we know and the other one we don't know. But it's our own consciousness that has that state in it. So it is a matter of changing our perception of what is and not being caught in our old established habits of the way we see things and the way we judge things and the way we experience them, but to be wide open. And this wide openness is greatly helped and enhanced through the meditative practice of opening the mind, letting it be uh, pliable and uh, expandable so that we have that openness of mind, so that we can see things in a different way because it's a matter of our own consciousness in which we live. Either we live in samsara or we live in nibbana. It is exactly the same person in a lifetime. It is a matter of consciousness. This has been... Uh, very well explained by a man um, Srinisagadatta Maharaj in a book where he explains about consciousness in a way which is uh, extremely um, uh, touching it, uh, it's very easy to understand he was he died three four years ago mm. What is the name of the book in which you say that? Uh, two, three, hmm? No, I, not in that one. I'm. Huh? The state of consciousness and prior Is that what it's called? I happen to have read it in German, so I can't say what the title is. It's very well explained. It's very well explained. Yes. And there's, a, um, there's an explanation which is really um, quite uh, graspable. It doesn't have anything in it that is uh, a sort of um, seems to be out of, out of reach. It's quite graspable. But the meditation is necessary.